morning. Good morning. It's early. I am, I am not a morning person. I would be asleep. I would lay down on the front row if I could. I had thoughts of maybe we, next year we should just, or cancel the first service and go to the second service. And I'm like, there'd be like three of us here. And I'm like, what are all you people doing here? This is just wrong. And so I've drank a lot of coffee. I'm not trying to do jumping jacks. Um, but we are in Luke chapter 3. Really, we're in Luke chapter 4. But we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. I'm going to actually read. I'm going to save us of the genealogy. I'll, I'll cover it in the message. But it's just, it's not the morning to read through the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. I would be able to put all of you guys to sleep in a heartbeat. So let's pray, and then we'll read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for this story which you've given us, Lord, that you've recorded um, the testimony of Christ and his coming, uh, Lord, through the gospel of Luke. And Father, as we come today, we pray, Father, that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of the text. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, Lord, awaken us to your truth, Lord. Help us to to hear the intensity of, of this passage. Lord, may you prepare us uh, to, to walk with you, to serve you. And Lord, may our minds and hearts be awakened uh, to the reality that we face in this world. We love you, Father. We praise you and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness And for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This story is a simple sort of story. It's a well-known sort of story. I've had two weeks to kind of prepare, and it was the hardest preparation I think I've ever had. I mean, I'm yesterday I'm going to Anne, I'm like, I just don't even have a clue of where I'm. I feel like there's something here, but I just, I'm struggling. So what I decided to do is I, I decided to go running, which I don't do that often anymore. I've been trying to get back into the running thing. And normally when I run, I, li- I normally listen to like a sermon or something. I'm like, you know what, this is different. I found an old CD from back in the day. The old supertones, for those of you that know the OC supertones, most people don't like them. I got one guy doing a, the fist pump over there. I like them because they're like a Christian band that actually like has a very Christian message, and I can work out to them. So I have about two CDs that I like, and 
but I haven't listened to them in a long time. I put them on my iPod and I went for a run. I'm like, and I'm going to go down to the cemetery and come back. And because uh, my house, it's about a three mile round trip. Put the CD in. I haven't listened to this CD. This was my like workout CD in 2000. I'd listened to it over and over and over again. I was preparing for a marathon in the Middle East. So I was doing my runs in like Kuwait, doing real world combat missions. And so this this CD, it like transported me back into this this time when I'm an active duty Navy SEAL. I'm I'm preparing for this. God was discipling me through this CD. Like there's a lot of good Christian values within this. And at the same time, I, you know, I was doing Bible college. I was doing real world combat. And so the the, the spiritual elements in our life, the, the, the spiritual combat we face and the, the real combat I was living were kind of warped into one. And so I set out on this three mile run last night and I just started thinking everything was like coming together. Before I know it, I like ran about like five or six miles. I'm like, this is going to kill me tomorrow. Like I am not, I have not been running enough to be running like this, but I'm like wanting to quit on my run. I'm like, no, if you slow down, one of your buddies is going to get killed and you can't like, so I'm going into like warrior mentality on my run. You know, I've manip- you know, it's just not good. And so I'm not only is there a time change, but I'm kind of hurting today. I don't know what I was thinking. And I was like, ah. Oh. Just like this whole story was coming clear, like during this run, realizing that I thought, you know, one of these days, what I need to do is I need to get a treadmill up here. I need to start running, put like one earbud in so I can listen to it and then just start sharing all my thoughts. And that might be pretty funny, I think. But in this the story, I think that the, the message we need to understand is that Satan and his demons and the fallen angels are real. There is evil in our world, true evil. There is a battle raging in our midst, whether we, whether we recognize it or not. This last Memorial Day, every Memorial Day, I go to Rosecrans and I visit friends of mine that have been killed in the war. I visit students that I put through their remains. And this year when I went, I bumped into Mark Lee's mom standing over his grave. He was a student that I put through training. There were a number of other guys that died on the mission where he was killed. There were students I put through, students I teased. And I remember just being overwhelming, like the feeling of thinking, man, guys, did I prepare you for what you were to face? And it dawned on me that Sunday that now my role is to equip you all for the battle that you face, for living this life, this course that God has put me on. Like how different would your life be? It was kind of on my run. You know, weird thoughts strike me as I run. So I'm screening out a bunch of them. But how would our lives look if we knew that we as a church, everyone in this room, and we'll include the 1030 service also, because I want to stack the deck a little bit. We said, hey, we have one month. All of us are going into Afghanistan. We are going to be fighting in, in physical battle. There's no way out of it. We have we are. There's going to be a bunch of guys that are going to be trying to kill us. And we have to fight for a week to stay alive. Do you think that the next 30 days might be different for how you live? We all might be going, renewing our memberships at 24-hour fitness. We might go, now, how does a gun work? Like, how do we? We would start thinking differently. All of us in Christ or out of Christ, if you're human, there's a spiritual war raging. And we're sitting on the couch eating bonbons. And we're not preparing and equipping ourselves. So I'm going to, my goal in, in today's text 
is to kind of push through to get to the conclusion. So at the conclusion is my, so what? What does this mean to us? This is going to be the heart of the message. So we're going to kind of brief, like kind of go through. I'm going to try to be quick to get to the ending because that's where I think the, the most important lessons are found. So I want to go back up to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. So here we covered briefly two weeks ago. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So this is awesome. Jesus, 30 years old. He's been basically on the sideline, not doing anything too miraculous. Suddenly he goes to get baptized by John and the other gospels. He goes up and John says, hey, I'm not even worthy to tie your shoe. Jesus says, you got to baptize me. He's baptized. As he comes up from the water, the heavens split open. The voice of the father speaks. A dove representing the spirit descends upon him. You have this picture of the triunity of God. So here's Jesus in all of his glory. As we look at Luke up to this point, we get a very good look at the deity of Jesus, that he's God. We see that it starts with the announcement of Gabriel in the temple that John the Baptist is coming as a forerunner. Then Mary meets the angel Gabriel and says, you're going to conceive a child as a virgin. And then the babies are born. Then at 12 years old, Jesus is in the temple debating the scholars of the day. They're recognizing him for who he is. And now it is baptism. The sky cracks open. The father speaks. The spirit descends. And you see this magnificent picture of, of God. And it would be easy to say, oh, Jesus is God and to, to neglect his humanity. But Luke at this point, he's going to begin shifting the story to show us that he was fully man, fully God. There's a theological term for this as a hypostatic union. The only thing you need to really understand about that is that Jesus is one person, 100% God, 100% man. We can't fully comprehend this. And Luke is about to show us his humanity and what he went through. So his genealogy, verses 23 through 38. I'm not even going to read the whole thing. I thought about doing the whole, just doing a whole message on this. You could spend weeks on this. Of these names, I think there's something like 70 names. or there, There's a lot of names. Half of them, you'll not find them anywhere in history, anywhere in Scripture. There's nothing about them. The others are a bunch of, there's like some really bad stories in here. We have murderers. We have adulteresses. We have all kinds of stuff. And as we begin to get into his genealogy, verse 23, the first part says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's critical that Jesus at 30, this is when the rabbis, when they could go begin their training. There's something about the age of 30. When I was applying to become a sheriff's chaplain in the interview, the guy said, listen, I applicants that are under 30, I just push them to the side. They haven't been knocked down in life enough to have the maturity to, to give wisdom to the, the, the magnitude of weight of the things that the officers. You need to get knocked down enough times in life. And I truly believe that range between 12 to 30 years old are formative years. That you can make some really bad choices during that window that can send you in a bad course in life. Or you can make some really good choices. 
Or you can make some really bad choices and God's mercy and grace can kind of steer you onto the right track. Like I made some really bad choices, I made some really good choices. You can do a little of both. But now he begins at 30. And then Luke says, being as, it was, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So he begins with his father, his adoptive father, Joseph. So everybody assumed his father was Joseph. We know that he was miraculously conceived by the spirit. All the way down, all of these names of just people. These aren't people to be venerated. These are, these are humans. These are people that struggled These are people that don't have great reputations altogether in the scriptures. All the way down to verse 38. The the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So of the four gospels, only two include genealogies. Mark doesn't say anything about his genealogy. John doesn't say anything about his genealogy. Matthew does his genealogy. He only goes to Abraham. The reason is, is the gospel of Matthew is primarily the intended audience is the Jewish people. They cared if this is the Messiah, how is he connected to all the the messianic prophecies? Does he fit? Is he a legitimate candidate? And it all starts from Abraham to various guys throughout. And so Matthew shows that he's fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, Luke goes all the way to Adam. And from the son of Joseph to the son of Adam, just for a little, you know, probably too much information. But I have those highlighted in orange. And then I have a straight line drawn through all of the names down to Adam. And I've written all humanity. And so what Luke is doing is he showed this introduction of the deity of Jesus. And now he's shifting, saying, no, Jesus is also fully man. He's He's grafting Jesus into all people of all time, of everywhere, all the way to Adam. This story is relevant for each one of us, all men and women of all time. Jesus is Messiah. Then he says, the son of God. Jesus is about to start his his ministry here. You think things are going to go great. You think, oh, he's just been baptized. He... The starting gate open. He's going to rock and roll out through the gates to get going. Life's going to be good. Well, immediately what happens, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So it's like, okay, he's, he's filled with the Spirit. He is God. He's walking with God. He's sinless. The Spirit is leading him from the, the, the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. Then you have the Dead Sea on the southern part. The Jordan River flows from, from north to south. And he's taken from the northern region down south to the wilderness by the Spirit. The first thing we see here is sometimes the Spirit of God will lead us into very difficult situations for, for, for his, his knowledge. Like he's doing a work in us. And sometimes we need difficult things to go through because it's a refining process. And so here Jesus gets led, verse 2, for 40 days, two days shy, I think it's two days shy of six weeks, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. This is sort of the synopsis of this whole story. Spirit led him around in the wilderness. He fasted. He's seeking God in his humanity. I love how Luke includes in there, and he was hungry at the end of it. 
Because if I think if he did put that in there, we'd say, well, of course he's God. He didn't have to eat for 40 days. He didn't struggle. He could do whatever he wants to do. And we as Christians, we need to guard ourselves of this. If there's one thing that I, could, I, I hope to get us to grasp, is that Jesus, the temptations, the battles, the struggles that he faced were real. That he struggled here at his weakest. He's, he's human. He hasn't eaten. He's broken down. He's starving. He's losing weight. He's probably gray in appearance. And this is when Satan comes in to do his full frontal attack. The story of redemptive history here is taking place. The Messiah has come. The world is in sin. Satan wants to block God's plan. And he's going to give everything he has to thwart Jesus and his plan of redemption. If you'd go with me over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews is towards the back of the Bible. It's one of these books that I have a hard time finding. Hebrews and James. I know where they are, but they they always hide in my Bible. Hold your place in Luke because we're going to go back there. But in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, we read something here. It says, therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become merciful and faith and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he says here, that Jesus had to become like humans. He, he, he had to become man. He had to truly be tempted in all things. He had to face and understand and persevere under the temptation struggles that we go through. He begins to unpack this, the author of Hebrews, in chapters 3, chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, he, he kind of concludes and says, For we, don't have a, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're told as Christians that, listen, hey, whatever you're going through, go to the Lord. He totally understands whatever you're struggling with, whatever temptations you're facing. See, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin when we give in to temptation. Being tempted is very normal. And temptation, it drives me crazy when I hear pastors saying, oh, temptation, it's no, sin is not fun. Sin's not a, no, sin is very pleasurable for a season. But the consequences of sin over the long haul over eternity are very unpleasant. And Satan is baiting the hook trying to lure us in. And, and Jesus went through all of what we went through. And this story of temptation it wasn't like jesus was tempted in the story then he went on with the rest of his ministry went to the cross ascended into heaven after all was done no this is a picture of what jesus battled daily towards the end of his life when he lets the disciples know hey i'm about to go to jerusalem they're going to execute me peter says no lord i'll never let it be done to you and he says get behind me satan he's not calling peter satan he's saying that Satan's using him to try to tempt him away from the cross. And so in this scripture, this Hebrews, he, Jesus was fully tempted. Back to Luke here. 
Jesus was tempted in every way. Jesus' temptation was far greater than anything than we could possibly comprehend. You think you have bad temptation and Jesus doesn't understand? Jesus was tempted far more than you were because Satan had to lay everything on the line to try to thwart him. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, we're told... Okay, this was one of my my memory verses. Let's see if I can get it before turning the pages. I really... Um, oh, man, I get so nervous up here. Um, it talks about temptation. Ah, let's go there, man. Does somebody want to give me the first word? No, therefore, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man... Uh, God will not allow you to be, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm all embarrassed now. I'm like, be what you can be bear, <clears throat> but provide a way out. So flee. Yeah. So check this out. <clears throat> we don't face temptation like Jesus faced a temptation. When we face temptation, it's only what God allows Satan or his, his crew to do to us. It's filtered by his hand. It's like Job. God says, okay, you can tempt him every way, but don't kill him. You can't kill him. That's, that's the limits. God is more powerful than Satan. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There's times, hey, your way to battle it is run, get away, get as far as you can. This passage doesn't say, I hear it quoted all the time and it can lead to frustration. God won't allow you to, God won't give you more than you can bear. That's absolutely not true. God, life is unbearable apart from Christ. We can't bear it. But he says, no temptation is overtaken to you. He won't let every temptation, there's a way out in Christ. And, and we're filtered. We get kind of like a, a small dosage of, of, of what Satan can deliver. Jesus dealt with Satan. I would suggest to you that very rarely do any of us actually deal with Satan. Satan is not God. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not everywhere. Satan can only be in one place at one time. Satan is not all-knowing. He cannot enter into our minds. Only God knows the thoughts of our minds. But he's got a whole crew of angels who have fallen we battle his team all of the time. Jesus took Satan head on. It was Satan that got... Jesus got Satan's attention. He's like, all right, boys, I'm going to handle him. Jesus' temptation was real. He was fully man. And the story we're looking at today is full-fledged combat between God and Satan. And we're in this battle as it rages today, although it's over. There are certain times in handling the Bible that I feel like I have an edge up on teaching it. Being a Navy SEAL, the, the Bible uses all sort of combat metaphors, illustrations, uh, examples to us. So whenever, like the whole combat thought in the scriptures, I feel like I got an edge up. When it comes to like animal husbandry, I got kind of a shortfall. Like I'm kind of like, I don't get it all. Valley Center's been helpful. When it comes to farming, I don't quite get all of farming. But this is a battle scene. And this is serious. And Jesus came to earth. He went through what we went through at a greater extent so that we can turn to him. We have a high priest who understands. We can go to him. We can share what we're struggling with. When I was a SEAL instructor, one of the funniest two weeks that I had 
One of the instructors thought it would be hilarious. He was willing to shave his head. And he said, what I'm going to do, he's a guy that was like from SEAL Team 6, of like the most elite shape guys that we had. He said, I'm going to shave my head, and on day one, week one, I'm just going to become part of the class. He did like two or three weeks of training. I was like, why don't you go through Hell Week, man? He's like, no way, not doing Hell Week. And then like after he did his little trial period, all of the students thought that he was just one of them. Real natural leader in the class, understood everything, was able to kind of coach him along. We're like, dude, you're telling him the schedule. We'd, he's like, hey, man, I'm one of them. I'm going to play by the rules. I'm gonna, if I know anything, I'm going to let him know. So you guys have got to hide the schedule for me. And then like on week four, he put on his instructor gear and he went out there and all the students like, oh. But then when he talked to them, it was like, hey, he like really understands. We, all of the instructors went through it. We understand what they're going through. But, but when he did that, suddenly it made more sense than like, no, he was literally like he was going to the chow hall with them. He was sleeping with them. He was doing everything. Jesus did that for us. He was in heaven. He became man. He wasn't man that became God. He was God who became man, lived with us, was tempted like we are. So then Satan's going to start tempting him three times. And he, Satan has three bullets. He uses these same three bullets over and over and over and over again. He used it with Adam and Eve. He used it all through the Old Testament. He used it on Jesus. He used it on us. And first, we'll look at it later. But in 1 John two seventeen, I think it is, the... Pride of the pride of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and I'm blanking on the other one. It's lust of the eyes and pride of life. The eyes, flesh, pride of life. Three things it'll tempt us on. So here we go. Verse three. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stones to become bread. Jesus is hungry. I don't believe this was like a one time sort of thing. Over and over. If you fasted food, you are hungry. And the temptation to kind of like, oh, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat. This if, Satan is not saying, hey, if you're God, this is a first class conditional statement. In the Greek, there are three different ways to say if. This is if and you are. This is, I know you're God, since you're God, you're totally capable. Hey, you're hungry. You can totally turn this stone into bread. Why don't you just do it? Satisfy your hunger. Why do you have to go through this? We know Jesus did. He multiplied bread on two occasions. He totally is capable. But that wasn't the purpose. And so in the first temptation, I think he came, hey, doubt God's plan. Take matters into your own hands. I like what a life application Bible commentary says. It says, many people sin by attempting to fulfill legitimate desires outside of God's will or ahead of his timetable. See, God gave us Hunger. It's very natural to be hungry. Jesus is fasting. This desire he have is from, it has from the Lord. God could have totally made us with the capacity not to have to eat, drink, sleep. We could have just lived life without eating. No problem. He, 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 he could do it. But he chose to make us hungry. And I think that the reason he gave us hunger is so that Jesus could use the illustration, I'm the bread of life, that he'll ultimately satisfy one day. And I think some temptations, especially like as a man growing up, like for me growing up, sexual temptation is, a, is one that I think is, is an area that we often fail in this area because God created 
our, our sexual beings. That he, he created it in the context of marriage. It's a beautiful thing. Yet Satan will use it. Oh, God's not going to give you a wife. You can't wait. Did he say to really wait till you get married? He'll use all kind. He'll hook that bait. He'll hook. He'll bait the hook with all sorts of temptation. And so you're you're fighting this desire, God given desire, and Satan wants to use it for shame, humiliation, evil, wrong. And the amount of trouble and pain and sorrow that I see in people's lives through this one. Where if you just do the things the way God wants you to do them, you'll be like life will go so much smoother. But Satan says, did God really say that? Oh, you're engaged. It's okay now. Did he really say that? Oh, and he's good. And there's total forgiveness if you were, you know, like this. But but we have to understand our enemy. He's going to bait the hook. And it's not like, oh, no, it's things are fun. Jesus looks at him and he said to him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Use, use scripture. And I've heard some people say, oh, make a big deal. Oh, could you just quote from Deuteronomy if Satan tempted you? Well, I don't think that's the heart. Jesus is going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 8. I think Jesus was in these passages. I think he was meditating upon them. And if you're just in the word, it's amazing. I don't care what book of the Bible you're in, you're meditating on, you're reading that day, that God will use that in your day-to-day life and walking with him. And I think Jesus was in these four chapters, maybe memorizing or meditating upon them. He says, listen, we don't live on bread alone. You can use scripture to defend yourself. For me, with the whole issue before I was married, Job 31.1, for, um, for I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a woman. Satan will use you to tempt you with things as guys. This is girls think, well, girls don't understand. But guys, it's like you see something, you're like, ooh, I'm the temptation. But you have scripture, and you had no, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a woman. God uses his scripture. Get flee from me, Satan. Second temptation, verse 5, and, he's, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory. For it has been handed over to me, to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be all yours. Satan wanted to be worshipped as God. This is how he fell from heaven. If you go to Isaiah, I think it's chapter 14. Um, and Ezekiel chapter maybe 7-ish, I think, around there. We see the fall. Jesus or Satan in heaven, he's, he's the top angel required to attend to the worship of the Lord. There's five I wills. And he bought, the bottom line is he says, I want to be God. I want to be worshipped like God. I want to be God. At that point, he's fallen from heaven. And he wants people to worship him. And we worship him through all sorts of stuff. Right here, Satan is preaching the prosperity gospel to Jesus. You worship me, I will give you this. Give you a better car. Oh, you just worship me, I'll give you a better house. I'll, whatever. Raise your credit line, it's okay. Max it out, you'll be okay. It'll be fun. Oh, and it's fun spending money. It's fun maxing out the credit cards. 
And then suddenly that bill comes. And suddenly you're exceeded beyond your means. And then you're, you've, you took the bait and you're stuck. Saying, Jesus, you just take the easy road. You just take this easy path. Worship me, I'll give it to you all. Jesus again answered him and said, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. I don't want all that stuff. I'm in the wilderness. I'll continue fasting. I'll continue going on the path that God has set me on. Verse 9, the third temptation. And he led him to Jerusalem. And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Same kind. All of these ifs are first-class conditions. They're not if questioning whether he is God. They're, they're ifs that affirm that he is God. Since you're God, why don't you just go ahead and do this? And so on the edge of the temple, I imagine this is the wall looking over the Kedron Valley. Huge, huge area. Look to the Mount of Olives. Throw yourself down. We're going to learn about saying Satan knows the scriptures. And he's not afraid to manipulate him. I believe Satan uses all kind of spiritual leaders using scripture, trying to lead people astray. Check out what he says. Since you're God, stand up on this and throw yourself down. For it is written. He's going to quote from Psalm 91. He says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. He said he's going to protect his Messiah. So, so if you throw yourself off, certainly the Father will not let you die. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Hey, you're God. You're the Messiah. Jump and all of the angels will come. They'll catch you. They'll lift you back up. All of the people will see it. Jesus says, it is said you shall not put the Lord, your God, the test. Saying, say, no, just test him. Show him he, he made these promises. I think we see this in other areas. Heard some guy, I mean, I, 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 I read some of Alistair Begg's stuff. I love, well, I listened to him. In the last couple of weeks, I found a message that he preached on this. Because it's like a little leprechaun preaching to you. Like, I love it. I mean, you're like, your ears just listen differently when you have somebody of a different dialect than you speaking. And he, like, man, he just went for the jugular vein on the people. I'm like, ooh, there's some people that are giving him dirty looks in the audience right now. He said, this temptation is, is, is like going to sleep at night, praying for health, yet all day long you eat cheeseburgers and French fries, smoke 20 packs of cigarettes, and you drink, th- you know, three pints of whiskey. But then you go to sleep and you say, oh, Lord, give me good health. You ignore the, the natural law that God's given, and yet you just hope, oh, Lord, give me good health. Yet you're not taking responsibility with what you know. I have one friend, he cracks me up. He's a pastor. He kind of fits the image of a Southern Baptist pastor. He's slightly overweight and, uh, and totally hilarious. I mean, he's from Oklahoma and, or somewhere in the Midwest. And he said, yeah, God told me he'd, he'd cure me of my diabetes. I said, Really? He said, yeah, he said, if I stopped eating sweets and, and fast food, stopped drinking soda, he'd heal me of it. I'm like, sir, are you going to take him up? He's like, no, nah, I'm not ready yet. I'm like, oh, man, you're hilarious. You know? It's the other thing. Well, Lord, protect our kids. You don't take the time to do what God tells you in raising your children. In marriage. Oh, Lord, help my marriage. 
But then Satan says, did God really tell you to love your wife unconditionally? Shouldn't she do this first before you start loving her? Oh, respect my husband, submit to my husband. That doesn't go. Ugh. But Lord, we help our marriage. It's like the things that God tells us to do cuts against who we are. It cuts against our wisdom because it's his wisdom. But then we, we see the disaster that we wreak on our own lives and we say, oh, Lord, would you just do a miracle here? I said, well, why don't you start doing what I tell you to do first and watch what happens? Try it for 30 days. Guaranteed results if you just do, if you get your heart right. Finances. Oh, Lord, I pray that you just help me financially. And then we blow our money like it's, like it's going out of style. We don't live within means and we find ourselves stretched. Like the number one thing, you want to go to a missions agency, they say, we're going to run a credit report on you. Oh, you got a credit card, you, can't, you got to be out of debt. You can't serve two masters. You've, you've got to live within your means to serve the Lord. And if and, and in our economy, what we've seen in the last few years, we suddenly see the damage that living beyond our means, what it could do. I think there's a reason that the, the generation of the, the depression that they are often referred to as the greatest generation. They learned some very valuable lessons. Like our grandparents, our great-grandparents, like we should probably learn, and we're starting to learn some lessons. But hey, listen, live within your means. You can be happy. And in verse 13, we read, When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus is going to go back to the Galilee. He's going to go to his hometown. We're going to see him start working. But we see in this that Jesus used scripture to rebut him. And at the end of it, Jesus left. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, it says, be, you know, the verse, be angry, yet do not sin. Don't... Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Some translations say don't give the, oper- the devil a foothold. Kind of like in rock climbing. Like, hey, the condition of your heart gets bad. Watch out because that's where the devil's going to get a foothold in your life. And he's going to start grabbing hold of you and start baiting the hook. And before you know it, you're way off path. In James 4, 7, we're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. That we can win this battle. But he's going to come back. He's prowling around. Peter tells us he's like a lion prowling the earth looking to devour someone. And we don't want that someone to be you or me or any of us. And now we're to the conclusion here. This is like, don't think it's over yet. I was speeding up to get to this point. This is, this is the important. So what? How do we respond if there's a spiritual war going on that, that there is evil we're on this side of heaven. We're caught in the midst of it. We need to understand our reality. First Peter 5, 8 through 9 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I know Rick just, he went to the wild animal park, and I heard him this morning say, Oh, I love the lion exhibit. I kind of like the lion exhibit. The one at the zoo is like, there's like a little mesh net and you can get the male lion there like roaring. Like, man, can that net really hold him? I'm not, I'm not too cool with this. Like, cause that guy could devour me in a heartbeat. And that's the image that God gives us to understand Satan. He's a lion. And when you go there at sunset to where the lions are, they kind of pace back and forth, start 
getting agitated, start lying. Can you imagine if you're in that pit with them? Whew. During the time of Peter, they were throwing Christians into the lion's pit. They were being devoured. Literally. And they were, Peter used that image to say that's how Satan is on the spiritual realm with us. This is serious combat. This is our reality. Satan's attack is threefold. First John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's so easy to give in to his temptations. They seem really good from a human perspective. We need to understand how our enemy operates so that we can defend ourselves. And it's interesting that in 1 John, if you were to go to 1 John chapter 2, 16, to see this threefold attack, if you continue all the way down to verse 28, our first instruction, our first battle plan is stated, Now, little children, abide in him, that's Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame in his coming. I think there's going to be a lot of Christians that are Christians that are going to heaven, but when Jesus appears... Their first reaction is to be like, oh, cotton temptation, shameful. They're going to look down at their feet because they can't look at him. But John says, no, abide in him. Walk with Jesus. Abide in him so that when he appears, you don't have to shrink away in shame. You just throw your arms up. Daddy, I can go home. Like it's odd. Like when I come home, the thing I miss, like talking to Joel. Joel had me like almost in tears. Everything to hold it together. His daughter got married yesterday. And sharing this image as a dad, like, I don't want to hear that stuff. Like, I love it that when I come home, I can see already a one and a half year old looking out the window. Dad! All she cares about is seeing me. And that's what the Lord wants with us when he comes back. We abide with him so that when we see him, it's like, all right, dad is home. We get to go be with him. And our attitude, go with me to 2 Timothy. In order to abide with him, this is where we need to turn to the soldier to understand our attitude in living the Christian life. 2 Timothy was the last letter Paul wrote before his execution. He sent it to Timothy, who was taking over the early church. This is literally his last will and testament to Timothy. The last words he'd pen. What would he say to this young man to prepare him for what he was going to face? And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Suffer hardship with me. There is no prosperity gospel. Following the Lord doesn't always mean you're going to reap benefits this side of heaven. Hardship. Suffer hardship with me. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I started out with kind of the joke, 30 days from now, we've got to go to Afghanistan. We're going to be in full-fledged combat. All we got is us. We have some supplies. I think our attitudes would change. We'd come up with strategies. How are we going to protect the children? How are we going to protect the women? How are we going to guard ourselves so that the enemy doesn't get us? Paul tells Timothy, listen, look to the soldier. 
in your Christian life as you walk with the Lord, look to him. Don't entangle yourself in sin. Prepare yourself. Lighten your load. Prepare yourself for battle because you're in it. And what's our battle gear? How? how okay, so our heart's right. We're ready. We're not going to get entangled. Ephesians chapter 6. It's, this, it's the armor of the Lord. Armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're so familiar with this, but it's, we, we can't let it become too familiar. We think of it like a Sunday school class where there's a pretty little picture of a soldier holding a sword, and we think, oh, that's it. Paul here is using a picture of their modern-day soldiers to help us understand the Christian life. How do we arm ourselves? Satan and his, his demons, his fallen spirits, it's real. It's all around us. He wants, to, guard, he wants to, to arm ourselves. He wants to prepare us. I tell you, when I went to go be a SEAL instructor, I got back from deployment in June of 2001. I checked in to instructor duty November 1st of 2011. Did something happen in September? Something major happened in September. September 11th of 2001, we were attacked. The worst attack on our soil that we've ever seen. Do you think my perspective as being a Navy SEAL instructor suddenly changed radically? Tell these students, guys, listen. This is for real. People are dying. Your lives are on the line. I suddenly realized that how I treated them as students, their very lives, my friends' lives were on the line. I mean, we knew it, but it was a whole new reality. I would rather, you know, we wanted them to make it, but I would rather somebody wash out that wasn't taking it seriously, that just watched G.I. Jane and thought, oh, I'm going to do something cool. It's like, no, this is real. We're at combat. Lives are on the line. Well, Christians' lives are on the line. I love the old Christians from like the 1800, They were zealous. We would think that they're freaks today in our culture. But they understood the spiritual stakes at hand. And Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. He gives us a command to do something so you can do it. It's not that it's naturally there. Put it on so that you will be able to stand firm against the what? The schemes of the devil. He's real. He's got schemes, all kind of plans. He's constantly trying to make an end in our life, trying to get a foothold. This isn't like a one-time, oh, I got him, I'm good. He's going to constantly, and I would suggest that the more you step out for the Lord and the more you walk, the greater the attack will get. If you're not living for the Lord, he's already got you. As you live, he attacks Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. They would set arrows, they would dip them in tar, they'd light them on fire, and they'd start shooting them so they'd set you on fire. It says, put up your shield because the attack is full force. The arrows would go into the shield and protect you. This is the kind of warfare we're facing. 
Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword. This is the first offensive weapon we see in all of this. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How did Jesus battle with Satan? No, this is the word. Satan even came back at him with the word. Used it out of context, manipulated it. We've got to know the word. Verse 18, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. He says, you've got to be on your knee. Pray, realize. And with that, I want to jump over to James chapter 4 to look at prayer. James chapter 4 is fascinating to me. When, this, when I first come to, came to understand this, it really kind of, I didn't like it, so... You might not like this. So James begins to say, and he's talking to these Jewish people who become Christians that were kind of live like kind of religious, you know. They'd be, they 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 weren't. He said, "Ah, your life." He's trying to get real change that that their faith had become real, that they were living out their faith in a real way. And he says, "What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you?" Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Notice that same sort of attack from Satan. You lust, you get all the stuff, you're living in the world. You don't have because you don't ask. And then when you ask, you don't get it. Well, what's up with that? Well, you want to spend it on your own pleasures, things that are not of the Lord. Now check out verse 4. It says, you adulteresses. An adulterer is one who commits infidelity against his spouse or her husband. And James looks at the church and he says, you're committing adultery on the Lord. You're adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? What he's saying is, can you imagine in a marriage relationships, you're a husband, your wife has a boyfriend on the side. Hey, can I have 50 bucks to go take my boyfriend out to the movies and get a dinner? Will you give me $50? I don't see any husband saying, oh, that sounds like a great idea to me. He's saying that's what you do to God. Oh, Lord. And I've been there, you know, early in my Christian life, been at the blackjack table. Oh, Lord, I'm about to double down. Can you send me a can you send me a face card? <laughs> God's not gonna like honor that. I'm cheating on him. He wants my heart, and I'm I'm praying that he give me something that goes against his nature. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So this picture of prayer is, is like a combat radio. John Piper equated prayer in the Christian life today as like a button on the wall for the butler. You know, you have room service. Um, can I get another pillow up in my room? Because this, this one's really soft and I'm not really comfortable up here. Are you serious? It reminds me of one of the most embarrassing moments in my SEAL career. We were doing real-world combat missions. We'd been doing them over and over and over again. We would get woken up from our sleep in the middle of the night, 
They would call us. We would go. It was on boats. We had two boats. I was always in the first boat. There was a good 10-minute delay between the first boat and the second boat going into the water. I was a communicator. I was tired. I was getting silly. You guys have all heard me sing. I think I watched a movie earlier that night before I went to bed that had the old 70s, I think, song from ABBA, Dancing Queen. You know, she was only 16 or 17. She was a dancing queen. Somehow in that moment, I had all of the words in my head. I had a microphone that went down right here. Full combat gear, and there's a bar here. My, if I wanted to transmit, I had a button right here. But there was like the microphone, but there was a hollow tube that went to my earpiece. And so I start singing. And I'm thinking that it was going through the tube, not transmitting to my ear because it was real windy. Like, so nobody else could hear me singing because it was so windy. I'm like, man, I'm sounding good. And so I started getting more into it. I'm like, dancing queen, she was only... And I, like I, the words are really embarrassing. And I'm like, man, this is sounding awesome. I must have gone on for five minutes. And all of a sudden, I guess I lean back, so I stop transmitting. And I hear my friend, the officer who is sitting in the aircraft carrier with the admiral watching us on FLIR listening to everything. He said, hey, and he called some other unit. He knew it was me, but he was trying to save us some face. And he called the boat guys. And he's like, hey, um, one of you guys is hot mic and ABBA. And can you keep under control? And I was like, oh, man. So we were out all night. Got back like pre-sunrise. And I'm like, man, did they know? Did they know? And I sat down in the galley drinking a cup of coffee. And my friend sits down next to me. And he's like, Gunner, I knew it was you. He's like, he's like, do you know how embarrassing that was for me? I'm like, what do you mean for you? He's like, I'm in the CIC. This is the, com- the combat information system. This is, you know, in the movies where it's all dark and all the people of power, they're watching stuff on video. He's like, you started singing. He's like, and you were sounding good. He's like, and so everybody starts looking at me like, what's going on? You're the SEAL liaison. And he's like, and you kept going. By the end of it, they're like tapping their feet, like singing along. And I'm like, yeah, don't tell anybody till we're undone from deployment. He's like, don't worry. But I'm using this radio in a way on accident, in a way it's not designed. I'm supposed to be using it for support. God gave us prayer. We're in a battle. We need to be on the Lord. I'm under attack here. I'm really struggling. Can you help me? Father, I'm, I'm taking battle from, this, from Satan. I need help. I'm being tempted. I don't think I can resist. Lord, help me. Lord, send somebody in my life. Lord, do something. I need help here. That prayer is our lifeline to the Lord to help for instruction. And we're using it. Lord, I need another pillow here. Lord, would you keep me safe? And I think Satan is so... T- God is caught up in fear. Did Lord really say to, to go to all the world? We're going to Mexico in two weeks. I can't tell you how afraid people are going to go to Mexico. If God wants you dead, he could, t- he could drop me dead right now, right here. If he wants you to go somewhere, you could survive whatever. The thing is, and I'm not saying everybody's called to go to Mexico or to do things, but there's so much where we're living under this fear. A guy wrote a book, I I only skimmed it, but it said, your God is too safe. And it's this whole idea that we're following the wrong God and that that Satan has so gripped us with fear that we're we're not afraid to, to step out and to go. So prayer. 
and the importance of our team. Go with me to Hebrews. This is, this is the last verse. We're done. I warned you that the, the conclusion was going to be the longest part. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you can find it, I always, Hebrews, there it is. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. The author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews so understood the Old Testament, understood the priesthood, understand, stood what Jesus went through, that we can go to him, that we can call out to him, that he understands our struggles, our temptations, that he's equipped us to live this life for him. And he says in verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says, listen, it's important to come to church. It's important to fellowship, to be in community with one another. Some people, D.L. Moody, I put it on my Facebook. He, you know, out in Chicago, we were able to go to see the museum. And I did a year of Bible college there. And to see the stuff, the intensity behind this man. And I guess radio was starting back then. And he said, oh. Listening to church on the radio is not the same as coming to church. And Satan will like to isolate us from the, the world, from, from our, not the world, but from our, from our community, our people that worship the Lord together. In combat, it, it, there's something called IADs. I can't go into it. It's classified. No, I don't know. It's not probably not classified, but, but it's, it's immediate action drills. This is... You're, you're, you're in a platoon, you're going along, suddenly somebody starts shooting at you. There's a whole process for how you get to press a fire down and how you get away from, from the, the funnel of bullets that are coming towards you. Once you get to a, a, a relatively safe distance, but you're still in the fight, you circle around and then the, the, one of the senior guys in the platoon quickly goes around and it's like a, a welfare and ammo check. He'll go around. And you say, I'm okay, or no, I'm shot, or I'm this, I'm, I've got some major issues, or I'm okay. Three magazines, zero magazines, five magazines. After he goes around, if you've got zero magazines, he'll go to a guy that has seven magazines. He'll say, here's two mags. Okay, guys, we've got to get going. See, this is church. We come here and we say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. No, really, how are you doing? See, my role as a pastor is to equip you all for the ministry. How are you guys doing? We need to be praying for one another. We need to equip one another. This time together is valuable. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have fellowship. Because the whole world doesn't think like the Bible. And we need to help each other think like God thinks. And when we are getting knocked down, there's so much value in having, hey man, I went just like that. Let me pray for you. Let me encourage you. Let me help you. Let me reload you with whatever. And I don't come to church because I'm a pastor. I hate missing church. Like even last weekend. It's like, oh, there's this thing in Chicago. It's a really big deal. And everybody from the church and the leadership is like, no, we totally encourage you to go for two weeks. It's like, no, I hate not going to church. I don't want my bar to be set so low for things that I'll miss church for. And we got home this weekend and I'm like, oh, man, like the kid was, our, one of the children was sick two weeks ago. I was like, I haven't been to church in two weeks. I'm like, yeah, I haven't been in a week, and I feel so, like, empty. So coming together 
encouraging one another because it's battle out there. Ask people. This is a great question. How can I pray for you? Say, this is how you can pray for me. And if you're really courageous, say, well, let's pray right now. Just pray. We need to pray. We need to encourage. We need to be real with one another because it's serious. And so, Father, we come before you. Father, we thank you that we have a high priest that has been tempted in every way. Father, we thank you that Jesus came, that he lived as we lived, that he was fully tempted, that he suffered in the flesh. And Lord, it's encouraging to know, no matter what we're going through, and we go through a ton of garbage, to know that we can call to you, that we can say, Lord, I'm struggling. And you sympathize with us, Lord, that you're able to to guide us, that your spirit can, can move in our lives. Father, we pray for those in this room that maybe have not trusted in you as Savior, that maybe are trying to earn their way to heaven. Father, I pray that your spirit would just open up their heart to see that your way is not man's way. And it's simply believing in Jesus, that he paid it all on the cross. Father, I pray that for any of us that doubt whether we're right with you, Lord, that you would help us to believe, that we would be confident in our salvation. Lord, I know that Satan so works to try to, are you sure you're really good with God? Do you remember this? And Lord, we know that it was the cross that paid for our sin totally and completely. And Father, for those of us who have trusted, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this world as it really is, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to draw near to you, that we would abide with Christ, that we would walk with him, that we would grow in our, our relationship, that the scriptures, Lord, that we would take it in day by day, Lord, that we would become the people that you want us to be. We pray for this church, Lord, that you would help us to link arms, to love each other, to encourage, to stir one another to good deeds. Father, we pray that you would help us not to listen to Satan. Lord, there's so many lies, Lord, between these earthquakes that are going on. Lord, we do pray for the people in Japan. There's so many things that scare us, the economy, terrorism, gangs in Mexico. But Lord, you've called us to do things. And so, Father, even for this trip to Mexico in a couple of weeks, Father, we pray, Lord, I confess, I get scared. I don't want to go. But, Lord, I believe you've called. And so, Father, I pray that you would just give us comfort and peace and tranquility in you that only you can give as we step out and walk with you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.